Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR. Today, we welcome author and MD at Storm Ventures, Tehee Nam. Tehee's new book, Survival to Thrival, is a popular addition to both the founder and investor's bookshelf. Many valuable lessons are covered, and we discuss quite a few of them today, including Tehee's thoughts on go-to-market fit, his title investing strategy, how to maintain scalable growth, establishing category leadership, the split personality of successful founders, and where to spot new tech trends. Here is the interview with Tehee Nam of Storm Ventures. Tehee Nam, Managing Director of Storm Ventures, joins us today from the Valley. Storm is an early-stage venture capital firm with a focus on enterprise SaaS. After some time in venture law, Tehee transitioned to the investment side. Since that time, he's enjoyed a great deal of success with notable investments, including Marketo and Mobile Iron. Tehee's most recent book, Survival to Thrival, has received rave reviews for its insights on building the enterprise startup. Tehee, welcome to the program. Thank you. Appreciate the invite and the opportunity to participate. Yeah, we're happy to have you. So tell us more about the story and this path to venture. Right. So as you mentioned, you know, before I was a venture capitalist, I was a startup attorney at Wilson Sun Senior Venture Law Group, where I worked with hundreds of startups on their startup journey. You know, I helped them incorporate, find venture capital financing, go public, do M&A, right. you know, execute CEO transition, mediate board issues. So I thought I knew a lot about startups. And then by becoming a VC, I learned it was a completely different job, you know, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> As a, an attorney, the, the founder CEO would tell you everything. You felt like a personal doctor. Whereas as a, a VC board member, you soon realize that you get very filtered news. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the biggest transition was actually in former clients of mine, you know, good friends of mine that uh, then I invested and I realized our relationship was different and I would just have different ways of interacting with the founders. Interesting. So you made that transition how long ago? Uh, in 2000. In 2000. So I've been a, a, a VC now for 18 years. Wow. Okay. And uh, can you talk about sort of the thesis at Storm and, and also your focus? Yeah. So as you described in the intro, you know, we at Storm invest in early stage enterprise startups, regardless of geography. And uh, we also invest uh, many times in first-time CEOs, so it's really important. uh, And what we aspire to as well is to help founders become enterprise leaders. And uh, to help them, that's actually one of the reasons why we wrote this book. 
the book we call Survival to Thrival. And we call it that because, you know, every startup has to transition from the survival stage to the thrival stage. And we discovered that the key to that transition point is when they discover how to unlock growth. Surprisingly, there was no name for this transition point. You know, the closest that people talk about is product market fit, but Mm -hmm. product market fit by itself doesn't unlock growth. So we decided to call this transition point go-to-market fit. And in the book, we also describe how to find go-to-market fit. Right. Yeah. And tell us more about this go-to-market fit. What, what exactly does that mean? And what are the, the key elements that you break down in the book? Yeah. So what we found is, is that uh, companies have go-to-market fit when three elements are working well. The first thing is, is that you have to line up with an urgent wave. That answers the two questions. First, why should someone buy your product today? You know, why buy now? And then second is to line it up with uh, something that will become strategic to the customer so that you're no longer just a point product that they buy as a Band-Aid and throw away. So the first is that you want to line up with that urgent wave. The second is is that you need to pick one go-to-market model which matches how the customer decides to buy. You know, you hear about all these different go-to-market models, you know, freemium can be very popular, land and expand, all that. But at the end of the day, it has to match how the customer decides to buy. And as a startup, you should only do one because it's hard to pursue four different models at the same time. Yep. And then the third element that we found critical is what we call the go-to-market playbook. What this is, is a simple one to two page document, which explains a repeatable sales and marketing process so that you can hire a new marketing person, a new salesperson. They look at this playbook and they know exactly what to do. And we found that this is critical in order for startups to transition from hero founder selling Mm -hmm. to just hiring normal people to build a growth machine. So we found that if you have these three elements and they're working, then we see go-to-market fit and the company is able to unlock growth. And what we've been coming up with videos and others is sort of more of a sequenced way of sort of how do you get from product market fit to go-to-market fit with the different steps along the way. Interesting. That third element, the playbook, is that something that's portable and applicable regardless of the type of enterprise SaaS startup? Uh, whether you know it's inside sales focus or maybe marketing focus? That, that's a great question. And so depending upon your go-to-market strategy that you're using, there are different playbooks, you know. And in the book, we describe three different ones, as you, you're alluding to. The first is, is that uh, if you have like a sales-led approach, mm-hmm. then it tends to be a heavier touch. And we share there the mobile iron playbook. You know, if it's more of a marketing-led approach, where marketing drives a lot of the go-to-market and maybe you have an inside sales at the end, that we uh, share the Marketo playbook. Mm. And then the third is, is that let's say you have even no salespeople. And so it becomes like a self-serve approach. And there we share the SendGrid approach. Interesting. So that that's a great question that you asked. Uh, so that's why we want to share you know, different playbooks for different type of go-to-market models. Are you seeing new go-to-market models evolving as well as you're monitoring successes in the marketplace and seeing the way that tech is is shifting and adapting? Or, or do you think there's kind of a core set that's going to be consistent over time? 
So I think that the fundamental models are there, but the tactics and the elements of the models change dramatically as new technologies and marketplace. I mean, I'll give you an right, example. Right. You know, cloud is definitely taking off. You know, you got AWS, you got Google, you got Azure. And so they're all building an app store similar to like Apple and iOS building an app store. And that's going to become, I think, an increasingly more important go-to-market model, go-to-market element as part of a partner go-to-market model. You know, mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. have done that, like Marketo did the same thing using AppExchange as Salesforce, or, you know, I invested in EchoSign that leveraged AppExchange as well that's out of Salesforce. So the, the models, I think, are conceptually the same, but uh, there are all these sort of new elements that people can take advantage of. Right tactics constantly shifting. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you mentioned earlier this wave analogy, and you've talked about this title investing strategy as well in the past. Um, are these concepts related, and can you elaborate a bit on them? So I find that as an investor, best thing for us is that if we can find and work with an entrepreneur who uh, basically surfs a big wave, you know, at the beginning, it's a small wave, but as it grows, it gets bigger and bigger, and then it carries it to a, a, a becoming a giant company. I mean, Marketo just started off with email nurturing. You could view it as a point solution. Some people called it just drip marketing at the time. But, you know, from that one simple use case, growing that whole up to marketing automation, demand generation, and then pretty soon, you know, you see director and VPs of demand generation in companies. And because it solves uh, the question of how to get high quality leads in volume. Mm -hmm. And that's why people would have demand generation. So what we found the best is if a startup can solve an urgent pain, because we work with the assumption that companies generally don't want to buy from a startup. And so they will buy because they have an urgent pain, but you want to use that opportunity to sort of enter and work with a customer and then become strategic with the customer. And so how do you become strategic is, is that if it relates to a strategic issue that the customer is dealing with, such as, you know, how do I get a lot of quality leads? And so then you can then grow from that uh, simple use case and become strategic. And usually for something to become strategic is part of a large wave. Such as, you know, how do you respond to the digital transformation or how do you become a data company like Amazon or, you know, how do you drive employee success? You know, things like that. Is it challenge to maintain a focus on being a product business instead of a consultative service business as you're, you know, evolving with the customer and developing better ways to help them address, you know, their challenges? That is another very good question that we talk about a lot in companies is this distinction between being a product and service. And the implication is, is that, you know, service is bad. Okay. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you just want your customer to be successful. And so I think what's most important is think about is how do you make your customer successful and a lot of times, you know, the product is there, but more importantly is learning how to use the product. And so that could be part of a service team or it could be part through thought leadership. Yep. You know, thought leadership is extremely important so that people know how to use it. 
And my belief is that as long as your gross margins are good and you have a good renewal number, then what you call service and what you call product is really not that important. What's important is making the customer successful with a high gross margin product and with a large percentage of that, that continues to renew. Got it. And as you're developing these solutions and working with customers, I would imagine many of these great founders are maintaining some focus on solutions that are somewhat scalable to similar customers, right? Yeah. So picking the right ones become critical, (laughs) right? You know, because what you're asking is, is it a one-off or is it going to be one of many? Right. So if what you're dealing with is a teaching customer that is an entree to one of many because they're a teaching customer and early adopter, then you've hit a gold mine. Yep. But if it's just a bunch of one-offs, then it's hard to build an economic model that works. Yeah, tail starts wagging the dog. Exactly. You know, you write a lot in the book about category leadership, and Uh we haven't addressed that a lot on the show. So I'd like to hear more about your thoughts on this and how companies can become a leader in a category. Sure. So this is more toward the later stage of the company as, you know, you're approaching IPO. And what the public investors have learned is, is that category leaders take all the prize. In other words, the first thing is, is that is this market going to become a category? And then second, are you going to be the leader? Yep. And if the market doesn't become big enough, then people don't call it a category. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know, so the fact that Gartner, Forrester, other analysts, uh, you know, the Wall Street research group, all that call it a category and you have conferences around it and so forth is that people view it as a big enough market. And anytime that happens, it needs a name. And so that name calls a category. And so being recognized as a category is a critical point, especially as you're looking at, you know, M&A or going public. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is that as people have done all this research, you know, most of the prize goes to the winner of the category. And so then how do you get recognized as the, the leader? And so what happens is that if you're a later stage company and people recognize you as a category leader in what's emerging to be a multi-billion dollar category, then uh, it becomes a huge race. But on the other hand, you're able to raise almost unlimited amounts of money to become that leader and maintain your leadership position. Got it. And sort of the next step then would be... I guess, even transcending the category and achieving some sustainable position as an industry leader. Um, Right. So what we found with companies I work with as well is that, you know, to become a category leader, the company invests so much to become great in that category. And it sort of defines who you are. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's like for Storm, we want to be enterprise investors. So we invest so much in becoming great in that category. But to become an industry leader, you have to be successful in multiple categories. And the challenge is, is that to become so good at one category, you create certain metrics, you create organization, culture, uh, workflow, everything. So what makes an industry leader, you have to transcend your category to be good at multiple categories. And that turns out to be much harder. A good example of that is like, you know, take... uh, Intel, for the longest time, they were very strong in microprocessor. And the question was, can they succeed in anything other than microprocessor? Right. And it turns out it's harder than it seems. And it's mostly because of the culture of the company and the organization and everything. 
to learn something that you've trained everyone is different than what they should be doing. Does it often require different leadership at that stage? Sometimes it does. And uh, that's actually going to be the second book that we are working on right now. That's the people journey. Where we talk about is, is that as the company grows through these stages, people's jobs change, even though the title does not. So it's like change is creeping up on you because everyone says, hey, you got promoted to this job, new job title, all that, new set of responsibilities. And, you know, you sort of figure I've got to change to from the new job. Right. But in this case, what happens is because the company grows, your job has changed, but your title and responsibility have not. Right. And so what we say in the second book is that you have what's critical is to unlearn your old job, because what makes you so good at that is what's going to kill you at the next phase of the job. <laughs> and we go through examples for CEO, VP of sales, CFO, you know, uh, VP of engineering and so forth. And this applies to board members as well. Such a challenge to find these dynamic personalities that can continue to learn and adapt and change and yes. capitalize on the opportunities as they present themselves. Exactly. That's uh, tough. But we thought by helping people anticipate change and understand why things are changing, then at least we'll make it easier for people. Got it. Yeah. If we were to dive deeper into uh, sort of founder makeups, you've talked about dichotomy and personality. You've talked about you know, split personalities that may be necessary for founders. Um, and you've cited the importance of being both pragmatic as well as ambitious. I think you've made comparisons to characters like Moses and how founders should right. be like, you know, on the outside, but more like Galileo on the inside. Um, right. I, I enjoyed these analogies, but I'd, I'd love it if you could elaborate a bit on the mental makeup of, you know, the successful founders that you've worked with. Yes. So this is coming out in our second book where we talk about what we believe is important in what we call the soul of the CEO, you know, the soul of the, the founder CEO, you know, not particular skill sets or that kind of stuff, but right. uh, in right. the soul. And what we say is that uh, there are three things that we think are important in the makeup of the soul of the founder CEO. The first is what you are referring to that with Galileo and Moses is this whole idea of being schizophrenic, basically. <laughs> you know, how do you have two personalities in one? But that's really what's required. And so externally, you're like Moses. And so people believe that you're going to take them to the promised land, despite the false temptations, the false gods, you know, everything along the way that, you know, externally you provide that leadership. While internally, within the person, you have to be paranoid about all the things that can go wrong and make the appropriate right uh, decisions and almost be like a heretic and looking out for all the different problems and so forth. And so, this sort of split personality internally and externally is a challenge and uh, important for every founder CEO. The second that we say is, is self-awareness. And this relates to what we were just talking about, how as the company evolves, the role changes. And so the, the best way to understand that is that a person needs to be really self-aware. And this is where we believe like CEO coaches and others can sort of help CEOs sort of gain that self-awareness so that they can learn how their role is changing and how they themselves need to understand that. Yeah. And then lastly, what we found is also critical is to have this sort of passion for the mission. 
It's like, why is this so important? And that passion for the mission is what's going to then cause people to sort of undergo these changes, to be that Moses, you know, to provide that engine for the tasks that are required. So that's what we look at and sort of say the soul of the CEO really are those three elements, you know, schizophrenia, self-awareness and passion for the mission. Do you look at yourself and look in the mirror and see if you also fit this criteria? Or is that premise incorrect that the investor also needs to kind of have these skills that the startup founder does? It's definitely important to have. But there's a big difference between uh, being an investor and being a startup founder or a founder or any executive in the company. You know, if we're driving execution and being part of execution, then we shouldn't be a board member. We should just be part of the management team. Right. And I uh, learned that because we had uh, incubated a company called Airspace, and I was the founding CEO for two and a half years. And I found that being in that role and driving execution and being a board member is quite different. Being a board member, a lot of times, I don't know if you have children. You have I children? do. I've got a 14 month old. Okay. Well, 14 months is pretty, well, once your child gets older, what you're going to find is there's so many things that you want your child to do, (laughs) but the child does what he or she wants to do. Right. And so as a parent, a big part is, you know, unless they're going to do something catastrophic, you have to let them grow their own way and learn how to manage your own frustration. And as a board member, we have to do the same thing. You know, obviously, if the company is going to do something catastrophic, you have to intervene. But there are a lot of times, you know, it's like you see a pothole in the road and do you go around it on the left or do you go around on the right? (laughs) You know, one might be slightly better than the other. But the more important thing is to avoid the pothole. (laughs) And and if the board is too involved in these kind of decisions, then it really neuters the management team and the CEO. Mm -hmm. What else have you learned from a board dynamic standpoint? You know, I know that you've you've had success shepherding companies onto exits. So you've seen this play out. Any other sort of key lessons or insights from uh, that path? Yes. One experience is something that I remember all the time. And that's because uh, there was a company where I was part of the board and uh, we misread the market. And I think, you know, we as a board, uh, unfortunately, caused that company to fail. So this was a company that was doing okay. You know, it was cash flow positive, but it was growing slowly. It was a nice, stable company with a solid management team and so forth. But we as the investors on the board really believe that the market was growing much faster than it really was. And we had a little bit of maybe market envy or envy of other situations. So we caused the company to accelerate growth by significantly increasing its investments. But the market growth didn't happen because it just wasn't there. And ultimately, that ended up in the the company failing. So as a result, I learned that just because this is what I want doesn't mean that that's really what is there. And to make sure that I understand the assumptions and be able to look at the company through the management team's eyes as well as, you know, my own from the outside. Interesting. Yeah, I want to talk about you a little more. I know in in the younger years you were applied math major. Uh Uh, Can you talk about how pattern matching and your experience and maybe your academic training have helped you identify the drivers that help predict future outcomes? 
Sure. So as an applied math major, I really like forming models. And in fact, to be honest, for me, if I don't have a model or an understanding of a situation, I don't function as well. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I really try to build frameworks uh, so I, I can see the big picture. That, that's very important to me. As a side note, my co-author, Bob Tinker, is an anti-model guy. He thinks models are irrelevant and he's really <laughs> more focused on how do I solve today's problem? <laughs> so, well, then it's a good, uh, good team then. It's a good team. And frankly, that's why it took us three years to reconcile our two views. <laughs> but but it's been worked out very well. So but going back to, you know, this sort of model. And so one of the things I do is I go back and look at my investments that I've made. As an attorney, I've worked with about 300 startups. And as a, an investor, I invested in about 60 companies today. And sort of look at those companies, and in particular, the first-time CEOs, and figure out what worked and didn't work. And one pattern that I've noticed is there were several first-time CEOs that I invested in that didn't succeed. I mean, obviously, I believed in them, and that's why I invested in them, and I worked closely with them, but they did not succeed. And then they went on to form a second company, and they wanted me to, to invest, but I turned down. And collectively, they did extremely well. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I, I feel like I paid a lot of tuition for their success. Um, <laughs> but through that kind of analysis, you know, we've learned and we as a firm have learned too. And so there are companies that we lost money, but we go back and look at the CEO and say, hey, was it an integrity issue or a leadership issue? Because if it's that... That's a more fundamental issue. Or was it because they didn't quite understand the right sequencing necessary to find product market fit or go to market fit in a capital efficient manner? Because if that's the case, then usually, you know, we paid for the tuition, they learned. And as a result, the second time, they're going to do very well. So in that situation, we found it's much better for us to obviously reinvest. And so that's what we've been doing. And so this is an, a, a specific example of how, you know, just applying this sort of applied math, trying to constantly analyze what worked, what didn't work, and, and, look, and look for patterns. It's really interesting. Um, I was talking about our firm and the way we invest the other day and had this epiphany that we don't regret any of our investments. We've been very lucky with, with our outcomes so far, but it's early days. But it's nice to be able to say that, there's not one investment in the portfolio we would go back and change. And I think even if some of them do go sideways, the types of founders that we're fortunate to be partnered with, I would invest in again. That's fantastic. One. That's a great mark of success. Been lucky so far. We'll see how it turns out. But, you know, you've also talked about kind of going out into the wild and observing trends. And you use this uh, situation on the subway in, uh, in some of your writings. Why, uh -huh. why the subway? Why do you go to the subway to observe? It's just an area that you can see a lot of people in a short period of time. <laughs> and so I think what you're alluding to, and I'm surprised you actually read that, that that's great. I'm Korean, so I go to Korea a lot. Mm -hmm. And so being able to just observe what people do on the subway in Korea versus, let's say, when I go to New York and ride the subway in New York. And so Korea for many years was significantly ahead of the United States in mobile. Yes. And so when you ride the subway in Korea, you would see a packed subway 
and half the people are on their phones, either watching a movie, playing a, an, an intense game, just entertaining themselves in a manner that you would think more appropriate if they were like at their home or in their room or something like that. But they're doing this in a packed subway. Right. And then I go to uh, New York and I find there is no Wi-Fi, you know, cell, you can barely get cellular coverage. And so, you know, what people are doing are all offline activities. You know, they may have you know, downloaded a book or something like that. But intensity of mobile activity was so stark and different. Interesting. So you, you go to Korea because it can be sort of, I don't even know the term for it, but they're experiencing technology and they're a bit ahead of the states, I guess, so to speak. And well, well, this was, I would say, 15 years ago, their mobile technology was definitely ahead of the United States by right, far. Right. They had 3G like five years ahead of the United States. So, you know, it's the difference between like dial up and broadband, you know. <laughs> so there was a, a huge difference. And as a result, you know, like uh, social networking came up first in Korea before the United States and all, all these kind of Internet services were camp. I find, though, that now, actually, U.S. is ahead of Korea, in particular because the biggest trend that I see that's going on right now in the IT space is the movement to the public cloud. The growth of the public cloud with AWS, uh, Azure, Google is by far the, the biggest trend. And it reminds me of, I mean, basically, it's a shift in the whole compute platform and the, the go-to-market platform. So it's like when we went from mainframe to PCs or the emergence of the Internet. And uh, because the three cloud companies are all U.S. companies, I think non-U.S. countries, with the exception of China, is sort of later to the cloud than the United States. Interesting. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Can you share any insights or any predictions that you're thinking about that the emergence of the cloud may create or may impact going forward? Yes. So the emergence of the cloud and the, the growth of Amazon really, in my mind, are sort of hand in hand. 
What I mean by that is, is that, you know, a- Amazon, forget AWS for a second. Amazon mm-hmm. without AWS is becoming a data company where they're making decisions based on data, data management, all that kind of stuff as a built on a platform. Yep. And so they're doing that because obviously they they have their cloud and leveraging the cloud fully. And I think uh, the rest of the Fortune 500, the rest of all these enterprise companies, you know, forget tech. I'm just saying just in general, in order to compete with Amazon, whether you're Walmart, whether you're CVS, Walgreens, all this are going to have to be Amazon-like. And that means they have to become a data company. And to do that, they have to leverage the cloud. Right. And so I see that happening. And and some people call it digital transformation and and so forth. But fundamentally, you're going through this digital transformation and coming out with data-driven management company. Right, right. Do you look at edge computing technologies as well? We look at it, yes. We look at that a little bit as a a way of complementing the move to the public cloud. Yes. Got it. Interesting. Yes, but the core is the, the public cloud. Tahi, any other lessons from the book you'd like to share with founders uh, in the audience? Yeah, I think the main thing is is uh, that it's very natural as a company grows for people to really be a superstar at one stage and struggle at the next. And that it's really up to the management team, the CEO and the board to sort of help people through this journey. Uh, the people journey, just like, you know, helping the company through its startup journey. And I want to end with just one example, and that is uh, take the role of VP of sales, because, you know, a lot of startups who work with all need a VP of sales. In the beginning of a company, from, let's say, zero to about a million in revenue, the best kind of VP of sales really is uh, what we call a Davy Crockett. An explorer type, uh, fairly independent, if things don't work out, doesn't freak out, and and will find that path through the wilderness by himself or herself or with a couple of people. And and so what you're looking for in the beginning is that kind of Davy Crockett to find the path through the wilderness and not be intimidated by all the unknowns. Love it. Once you have the path through the wilderness, the best type of VP of sales is someone like Mel Gibson out of Braveheart or Joan of Arc. (laughs) What I mean by that is a true warrior leader. You want a person that sees the path, but to drive through the path, you know, you're going to compete against like Mel Gibson did with the English. You're outnumbered 10 to 1, 20 to 1, but there's no fear. You hire and you recruit your close friends, your colleagues, and all warriors, and you're out there to just win deals and uh, compete aggressively. And that turns out to be great in getting up to, let's say, $20 million in revenue. Okay. And as you start getting scale, you've got like 50 reps, you're building out internationally and so forth. The next type of VP of sales at that point turns out is that what you want is someone that's more like a a Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower was dinged because he never fought in battle. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's like an army general who never was a warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But what he's very good at is politically working with all the different warrior leaders like the Pattons, the Montgomery's, you know, all these different kinds of leaders and having them go in one direction. 
And so that's then at that point, you can build a very large international global sales network with a different kind of goal. So it turns out to go from that Braveheart to Eisenhower, a person has to really give up being that warrior and being recognized as a warrior. And for many VP of sales, that's sort of like giving up the essence of why you're such a great salesperson. Sure. It's because I'm this great warrior. And, and so I just want to end with that by saying that, you know, we talk about this applying the same thing for different type of CEOs, board members and all that. But this is sort of a concrete example of how at each stage, you know, you require a different kind of skill set. And it's important for us to all recognize that and to help the person if they want to get to the next stage, but also understand exactly what skills are required to succeed at each stage. Yeah, I haven't seen it throughout the full scale of a a startup's evolution, but certainly on the enterprise, just the business side in general, lots of missteps I've seen in promoting sales folks to different levels of the Mm -hmm. organization. and. Mm -hmm. They may not be set up to succeed as a manager or a, a district leader or moving from the strategic account side to geographic or product side. There are certainly different types of sales folks and very few that you know can be the Davy Crockett, the uh, William Wallace, and the, the Dwight Eisenhower all in one. Yes. And, and if you can find a person like that, then they're gold. <laughs> Tehi, if we could cover any topic here on the program, what topic do you think should be addressed and who would you like to hear speak about it? I frankly feel like we covered a wide range of things. I guess the, the one thing I just want to end up with is, you know, just going back to our first book and the second book coming out is that, you know, we're really hoping that they're helpful. And if people have any comments or questions, we encourage people to uh, reach out to us. And we've spoken at business schools, accelerators, other places, and then you know, trying to make the content also available on uh, YouTube as a way of just helping people you know, in their own uh, startup journeys. Oh, great. We'll make sure to get all those links linked up. And Tehi, what investor has influenced you most? It's a person named Ken Oshman. He unfortunately passed away, but he was the O in Rome. And then was the founder CEO of Echelon. And I got to watch him when he was on the board of Stratacom. Later on, he was on the board of Sun and many others. What impressed me the most about Ken is that he was fundamentally counter-cyclical to the rest of the mood. So in other words, if everyone was feeling great after a phenomenal quarter, he would sort of talk about the issues. If we missed and everyone was really down, you know, he, he would emphasize the positives. And so his ability to be the sort of counter-cyclical mass ballast just provided a lot more stability for the company. I'd say he played a key role in Stratacom, you know, not selling for $80 million, becoming successful and ultimately exiting for close to $5 billion. Wow. Amazing. And finally, uh, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? The best way would just be through LinkedIn. Now, I accept every LinkedIn invitation and, uh, and, and read my LinkedIn emails. Wow. So, well, very yeah. good. Well, it's been a huge pleasure having you on the show to talk through the book. It's all the buzz right now in the Valley. I hear a lot of investors speaking about it. So it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And thanks for walking us through it. 
Well, thank you very much for the opportunity and really uh, enjoyed the questions and look forward to also meeting in person. Awesome. Me too. Thanks, Tahi. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. That'll wrap up today's interview. If you enjoyed the episode or a previous one, let the guest know about it. Share your thoughts on social or shoot them an email. Let them know what particularly resonated with you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate that some of the smartest folks in venture are willing to take the time and share their insights with us. If you feel the same, a compliment goes a long way. Okay, that's a wrap for today. Until next time, remember to over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. Thanks so much for listening.